up me old booties and welcome to occult experiments in the home. Magic, spirituality and the paranormal in personal experience and in practice. Sometimes I wonder whether what I do and what I'm interested in actually deserves the description of magic or occultism at all. But then I suppose it depends on your definition of magic and the definition of magic that I've settled on is the one devised by my friend Alan Chapman who defined magic as the experience of truth. Now that has two senses to it I think. So in one sense what we're doing when we practice magic is we're making something true. So we perform a spell in order to make our intention into a reality. But the good thing about Alan's definition, I think, is it, it leaves open that other perspective. Magic as a means of arriving at truth in a direct way. So magic being a process whereby we encounter truth. So on the one hand, magic is a means of making something true. And on the other hand, magic is a means of arriving at what's already true, what's already the case. But of course, people get very twitchy about truth these days. And with the advent of postmodernism, we've now become used to the idea that, uh, you know, there is no such thing or truth is something that's very relative. And I think that's part of the reason why the mystical side of magic has fallen out of fashion these days. Because, of course, mysticism is very much about that direct encounter with the absolute, with... Uh, the ultimate truth. So what I invite you to do in these podcasts, if you want to, is to entertain perhaps a, a different approach to truth than the one that you might be useful, the one that you might personally espouse, or, or maybe the one that, you know, as I think we all have, have, have been educated into this idea that there's no such thing as truth or truth is something that's always provisional, always relative by its nature. What I invite you to consider instead is that truth is everywhere, that it's extremely common, that we're absolutely drenched in the stuff. We're covered in it. I'd invite you to entertain the notion that your experience right now is perhaps not some sort of paltry, meagre, insufficient, <laughs> withered, partial kind of thing, but an aspect of the divine, that what you're experiencing now is you, as a part of the universe, recognising itself. Now, I think a lot of magicians, a lot of people interested in the occult would, you know, easily entertain uh, that kind of notion. And yet, there's this sense that our experience, our understanding, is somehow inadequate, somehow partial, relative, impoverished. To come at this from a different direction, let's take a particular perspective from Buddhism. The Buddha taught that awakening, enlightenment, realisation of ultimate truth was a process that involved seeing through the delusion of selfhood, seeing through the fact that the, that the ego is an illusion. Well, if that's true and there is no self, then there is no self. In order to become awakened, we don't need our self to go away in some sense. Because if there is no self, then it's already gone. It doesn't exist in the first place. What that means then is that what we are experiencing right now, 
you know, just just as we are, is the truth of no self. It's not going to change in any way if what the Buddha says is true. Now, the danger there, of course, is um, that we fall into the trap of thinking that we, we don't need to awaken, that um, there's no work to be done there. And of course there is. But the work to be done is not making the self go away. The work to be done is understanding the sense in which what we're already experiencing is the ultimate truth of things. Oh my God, so could that just possibly mean that we are already totally immersed in truth? There's also a theistic, mythological perspective as well that that maybe is pointing at something similar. Truth is often personified as a female deity, as, as the goddess. And I'm thinking here of, um, you know, a goddess like Babylon, perhaps, the sacred whore. And, uh, you know, it is unfortunate, perhaps, that um, the analogy, the metaphor that I, I think is being used here is sexualized. But I think the, the figure of the sacred whore is an analogy for truth. In the sexual metaphor that's being used, truth as a whore gives herself to to everybody indiscriminately all of the time. That's what that image is getting at. Um, truth is available to anyone, always, completely, totally, fully and intimately. What is true has integrity it has wholeness unity but of course um, in our day-to-day thinking we tend to be quite dualistic and the kind of images of truth that I'm using here I think are images of truth sort of from the side of truth but there's also another side of course which is images of truth from the side of falsity And I mentioned the idea of Babylon, the idea of truth as a goddess who gives herself to everyone. There's also the other sort of goddess, the virgin goddess. Goddesses like Artemis, Diana, Athena. Here we have images of truth from the side of falsity, so there's a sense that... um, Truth, in this sense, is is untouchable, unreachable, unknowable, ultimately mysterious, ultimately unavailable, and again, it's it's unfortunate that the that uh, it is a, a kind of sexualized and gendered metaphor. But the sense here is that approaching truth from the side of falsity implies destruction, ruin. Actian sees Diana naked. In other words, he sees the, uh, he glimpses the absolute truth and he's torn apart by the hounds as a consequence. When we approach truth from the side of falsity, everything has to be destroyed, ripped apart. And there's also a sense of this in a, a goddess figure like Kali, who's, who's not explicitly represented as a virginal goddess, but... There's that same sense that she destroys in order to take us to an experience of the ultimate. But anyway, all of this is me in my very roundabout way, trying to get to the place where I want to highlight that what I'm trying to do in my writing in these podcasts is put forward a view of magic where it's very much human experience that is front and centre, where it's in experience itself that we situate the, the techniques and the results of our magic. So what I'm going to be focusing on today are ideas around how we relate to the dead, 
and the relationships between the dead and the living. And I'll be coming at this from the angle of these being experiences that we all have. These being experiences that are intrinsically a part of being a living human being. We might tend to think that if we are to have contact with the dead, then this requires us being some sort of special person, like a, a, a medium or, or having special psychic abilities, or that it might involve us performing some sort of uh, ritual or rite um, in order to attain some sort of altered state or, or some sort of magical result in order to be able to, to have that connection with the dead. But what I want to talk about is the way in which relationships with the dead are a part of our ordinary experience. In other words, it's a part of the way things are, in reality, in truth, that the living and the dead are connected to each other. And it's the magic of the experience of that truth that I'll be talking about today. Now, the most common way in which we come into relationship with the dead, I mean, more than common, absolutely ubiquitous, is through bereavement. Somebody close to us or known to us dies. And the massive impact this can have on us is generally seen in terms of the ending of a relationship with the person who has died. So there's this sense that a relationship with somebody has come to an end because they've passed away and the living person is just kind of left hanging. There's an attachment there and yet the idea tends to be that there's there's no one who can receive that attachment any longer. So something needs to change. We need to reorient ourselves because the relationship that we were in has, has come to an incontrovertible end. And there's some work there that we need to do. We need some sort of reorientation, some sort of change of perspective in order to kind of take into account, bring into our new reality what has happened. And because of this, Bereavement, of course, is something that very often takes people to, to therapy or counselling. And consequently, there are a lot of uh, theories of bereavement and grief and mourning that are used in, in therapy and counselling. And I'm going to have a look at some of those because these are necessarily about relationships to the dead. I mean, you know, on, uh, the way they're generally looked at uh, is, um, you know, tools, techniques for um, coming to terms with loss. But underneath the surface, of course, what's also being addressed there is a relationship to somebody who has died, even though that relationship is being expressed in, in terms of a, of a negativity, of an absence. Now, I'm a great fan of Sigmund Freud. I think he's a, a wonderful writer. The Interpretation of Dreams would be one of my Desert Island books. I just find him an absolute delight to read, although I'm aware that his ideas or certain aspects of them are, are very much out of favour these days. But what I want to do is frame this discussion by one of Freud's most wonderful papers, which was one that he wrote um, around 1917, I think it was, called Mourning and Melancholia, in which he investigates the parallels between grief, loss, bereavement and depression. Freud, of course, was uh, a scientific materialist, but there are all sorts of interesting connections and intersections between Freud's way of thinking and occultism, even though he very much sought to deny that. Jung is very much more explicit about all of that, of course. 
But it has to be remembered that Freud set out to produce a, a completely scientific theory of the human mind. That's what he set out to do. And early on in his career, about 1895, he attempted to set all his ideas down on paper and realised that it couldn't be done. You know, the, the science of his time just couldn't couldn't give him the the underpinning for what he set out to do. You know, and it should be remembered that psychoanalysis was his response to that. What what he resorted to, in essence, was a kind of science fiction. Um, he hadn't got the science to, to back up a kind of materialist psychology, which was what he set out to achieve. So he started to invent things. The unconscious, the id, the ego, the drives, all of the the conceptual apparatus of Freudian thinking. These are just hypotheses that he kind of invented out of thin air, but they provide a useful way of thinking about what the mind might be and how it might work. Ramsey Dukes, the chaos magician, in one of his uh, biographical books talks about how what drew him into magic was uh, the experience at school of coming across imaginary numbers um, which are numbers that can't possibly exist and yet they have real world applications you know you can't produce um, computers or um, dvd players without using imaginary numbers these are things that, that that can't be real and yet they produce results they enable us to get somewhere they result in the manufacture of real world items and i think it's it's possible to see psychoanalysis um you know and uh, a lot of that kind of psychodynamic depth psychology as a, a sort of magical venture in the same sense we're talking about things that are purely hypothetical that maybe aren't real but perhaps they do enable us to get somewhere. They do enable us to to understand characteristics of the mind and how those might function in some sense. So that's the spirit in which I'm presenting Freud's ideas here. His paper, Mourning and Melancholia, it is so beautiful. There's something poetic about it, um, in my view. It's... One of those papers, I think, that really shows what psychoanalysis has to offer. It's just such a, a perceptive, sensitive, close analysis of what happens when, when we grieve and um, the connections between that and depression. And, and of course, you know, the two often go along together. And using the psychoanalytic approach to really kind of tease out the the similarities, the differences, and useful ways for thinking about what actually happens to us when we lose somebody we love. And one of the ideas that Freud comes up with, which is really something that's um, taken for granted these days, is that what happens when we grieve, when we lose someone, amounts to a kind of work. There's real work that goes on in mourning. So we lose somebody, they've gone, and we withdraw. And something has to be got through in order for us to kind of come back from that and resume um, life in some sort of semblance to the way it was before. Freud suggests that What's going on there is uh, the work is about freeing up the the attachment, the libido that has been invested in the person that we've lost. Suddenly they've vanished from the world, and yet there's Freud suggests you know still a sense in which our our attention, our emotional investment is still with that person in some sense and, and there's some work to be done which involves us, you know, going within and freeing up that attachment, you know, directing it elsewhere, directing it in different directions and and then once that's done we can resume our relationships with the world, although, you know, they're likely to be quite different. 
And this is an aspect of Freud's thinking in this paper that I think has been taken up by subsequent thinkers and uh, and very much um, part of theories that came after Freud. But what I want to highlight here is, is the bit in the paper that is most original, most unique about what Freud has to offer here. And this has to do with the parallels that he identifies between grieving and depression. So Freud writes, In mourning, it is the world which has become poor and empty. In melancholia, another word for depression, it is the ego itself. The patient represents his ego to us as worthless, incapable of any achievement, and morally despicable. He reproaches himself, vilifies himself, and expects to be cast out and punished. So when we're grieving, Freud suggests, something very important has been lost from our world, from reality, and we have to to do some work to reorganize ourselves internally so that we can we can get back to to relating to the world in some way but he's also suggesting there that there's a a, a structural similarity in depression but here it's an internal loss in some sense there's a sense that we ourselves are in some sense lacking something insufficient in some degree And he's suggesting that just as grieving is a form of work, uh, whereby we reorganise ourselves and come back into the world, so depression is a a kind of work where some sense of internal loss has to be got to grips with if we can come back to feeling able to, to love ourselves. And of course, what's going on in depression is a lot less obvious than in bereavement. It's often far more difficult to work out where that sense of internal loss is coming from. But what I want to keep sight of here is this sense that the mind can relate to things that are external, things that are internal. It can relate to itself, it can relate to others. And all of these experiences are equally real. So a person who is depressed is mourning, is grieving, and that's not for something they've lost in the external world, but for something they've lost internally. And yet the consequences of that are just as powerful, just as real, just as devastating as losing a loved one. So this takes us to the very heart of Freud's paper, and, you know, the most poetic idea of all, I think, that he expresses in it where he talks about the shadow of the object falling upon the ego. This is what he suggests is happening in depression. The term object in psychoanalysis refers to any person or thing that we have a relationship with. So depression, he suggests, is when we lose an object. But instead of mourning it, the ego identifies with it which means, in a sense, it's brought inside the mind by identifying with something we make ourselves as close to it as we can. Uh, We make ourselves identical to it to the extent that we can. We cling on to a relationship with it. Whatever we might have lost, we can't punish that personal thing for going away because it's gone. But what we can do is punish the part of us that's identified with it. And this, Freud suggests, is what we're seeing in depression. The suffering in depression is the pain of loss turned against the self, specifically that part of the self that's identified with the lost object. If this sounds a bit abstract, then let me let me give uh, an illustration, something I noticed of, of some years ago that really struck me at the time. In another of his papers, I think it's The Ego and the Id, Freud talks about how the ego is basically just made up of all the things that we've lost. Everything we we lose, we identify with to some degree in order to to overcome that loss to some extent. And I remember one day standing at the cooker making some food and I was stirring something in a pan 
and um, suddenly I realised that I was standing in exactly the same way as an ex-girlfriend used to stand when when uh, she was cooking, and I'd split up with with her years before. But I suddenly realised that that way of standing it was hers, and uh, it was something that I'd I'd taken over, taken into myself. And once it had come to to my attention, I could I could feel that it was in a strange way connecting me with her. And, uh, you know, kind of just a, a sort of part of her that had become part of me that I was still carrying around. When you give it some thought, you might be able to find all sorts of examples of this. I mean, I think think there are many. You know, I've certainly noticed them over the years. Little things, little habits, little tics, little mannerisms that we take from other people, that we take into ourselves, make our own. We're... We're full of them. It's pretty much everything that we are, in a sense. Freud's suggesting there that our egos are the amalgamation of all the things that we've lost, all the people that we've lost. The dead and people we've lost, we carry inside us really intimately. And it's often the fact that they're so close that we we fail to notice how much of them we are. Or how much of them is us? In the theories of bereavement and grieving that get used in counselling and therapy, there does seem to be this tension between an emphasis on getting through the work of mourning and getting on with your life and a recognition of the fact that we never get over the loss of a loved one. We never fully recover from it and we always carry them with us in some way or to some extent. The most famous theory of grief, probably because it was the first one that was put forward, is is the one by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, where she identified five stages that, that people tend to pass through. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally, acceptance. And over time... Uh, that one started to receive quite a bit of, of criticism because it was seen as quite normative. You know, putting forward this idea that there's something called acceptance that needs to be worked towards and if a person finds that difficult or, or maybe doesn't doesn't get there, then, then that's some sort of weakness or deficiency. And then there are theories that fall kind of midway, such as um, Lewis Tonkin's theory also known as um, the fried egg theory, uh, because of the diagram that tends to go with it. So that conceives of, of loss as a, a, a kind of um, circle in our lives, you know, and that circle it consumes us, you know, we're, we're composed entirely of loss. And it's impossible to, to see past that when it occurs. But we find ways to grow around it. So over time, away from that circle of loss in the middle, we might grow a little bit in one direction or a little bit in this direction or that direction. And you end up with a shape that's the circle's in the middle, but there's this kind of amorphous blob around the circle, you know, like a like a fried egg with a round yolk in the middle. And that represents how, although that, that circle of loss in the middle never really goes away. We we incorporate it, we we absorb it somehow. The loss is always there. That sense of that person is always there, but we go on with life and, and grow in whatever way we can, in whatever direction we can. But more recently, uh, a new theory has emerged, um, which is called Continuing Bonds Theory. So continuing bonds is is about the fact that um, <laughs> although it's held up to us that acceptance is the goal that we work towards when we're bereaved, this is this is not what people do. Um, in reality, people continue to have a relationship with the dead, with people they've lost. 
when people die, what what usually happens, and and um, continuing bonds um, explores this, you know, over a, a range of different cultures. What what happens is the dead stay around. They're still in our minds. They're still in in our hearts, and uh, we commune with them. We talk with them. We think about them. And also one of the things that the Continuing Bonds book suggests is that people who take that attitude towards their dead, you know, seem to seem to recover and get on with their lives more quickly, even though they're actually maintaining a relationship with the person who has died. When somebody dies, often unusual things happen. Unusual experiences around the time of a death are so common that it's almost the exception when something like that doesn't arise. My father died in 2011. He had a a sudden heart attack, so it was completely unexpected. And before he died, he was in intensive care for a number of days before we made the decision to let him go, basically. He'd spoken in the past about what what he wanted, you know, if, if that situation had ever arisen. So it wasn't as if it was a difficult choice to make in terms of what his wishes would have been. Whilst he was dying, we were by his side as much as we could be in the hospital. He was unconscious, he was he was in a coma and hadn't regained consciousness at all since since the heart attack. One thing that quickly became apparent to us, and anyone who's been in a similar situation will know this, is how exhausting it is to to be at the bedside of someone when they're dying. You kind of think to yourself at the time, well, you know, I'll I'll stay with him for a day, I'll stay with him for a couple of days. But there's something so, so exhausting about doing the death watch, about being with someone when they die. It draws so much energy out of us. So we'd reached a point at my dad's bedside where, you know, we we just had to go home uh, to get some rest, to get some food. And I remember we were driving back in the car, heading home. And suddenly a strange feeling came over me. I was thinking about, you know, how the next few days were likely to to pan out, how we were planning to just nip back home, get some food and then come back and stay the night at the hospital with my dad. And then this strange feeling came and I was kind of looking at the sky, nothing out of the ordinary there, just just a cloudy sky. And this feeling descended over me just came out of nowhere and it was the feeling you get when somebody has played a trick on you you know somebody has um diverted your attention somewhere so they can they can do something that they wanted to keep hidden very strange feeling overwhelming and at the same time as i was experiencing this i heard my niece um who was on the back seat of the car talking talking to my mother and just as I got this feeling, she she said, you know Grandad's going to die, don't you? He's he's going to die now because he doesn't want to upset you. Now that he's got us out of the way, he's going to die. And it was almost as if she was putting into words exactly the feeling I was getting, you know, that my dad was pulling a trick on us, that he'd distracted us somehow. Anyway, we got back home, we were just getting some food and... Sure enough, inevitably, the phone rang and it was the hospital telling us that in those few minutes after we'd left, he'd passed away. Now, one way of looking at all of that, my dad passing away, that feeling I had in the car, and the coincidence of that feeling with my niece apparently having a similar experience, you know, that that, um, provoked her to give voice to to those thoughts one way of looking at that is a synchronicity just a load of things happening together at the same time and the thing about synchronicity is what we've got there is a a strange kind of collapsing of inner and outer of 
individual subjectivity and the world of the living and the dead, you know, in, 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 a, in a synchronicity, what's also going on is everything collapses into one. It's as if the, the kind of universe is, is sort of looking back at us and, and, you know, just showing how everything is connected together in, in, in kind of one thing. And experiences around the time of a death can be very much like that because death brings up these questions about what is our relationship to the universe? Is the universe in our mind? Is our mind in the universe? On some level, all of these things have to be the same in some sense. My father's death was a big shock and we were all in trauma and grief and we were all dealing with that in our different ways. And at the time, I was very interested in lucid dreaming and, and practicing that quite a lot. And what I started to do was I realised that in a lucid dream, I could get my dad back. I could wake up inside a dream and I could go and visit him and the thing about lucid dreams is they're, they're as real as anything our sense of reality in a lucid dream is just as strong as it is when we're awake I could go and visit him and I could spend time with him and it was just as real as if I was sitting with him when he was alive I could have the experience of seeing him touching him, hearing him talking with him, smelling him and all of those were exactly the same as they would be if I were awake and he were there. And this set me thinking, when you think about it, what is our experience of another person at any time? Well, our experience of another person is, is to see them, to hear them, to touch them, to witness their behaviour, to hear their words... So where was the difference then in having that experience of my dad in a lucid dream, going to meet him there, and having an experience of him in waking reality? It was really difficult to say that there was any difference there. My dad had existed for me throughout my life in terms of the impacts his presence had made upon me. That was what he was for me. That's what anyone is to anyone. And that hadn't stopped. That was still available to some degree. Certainly in a very vivid sense, in a lucid dream, but um, also in memories, in thoughts. It became apparent to me that in a very strong, very real sense, my dad was still around because my experience of him was still around. This is the underlying aspect or reality of human experience of the dead, I think, that Freud is, is <laughs> pointing at, you know, when he talks about the shadow of the object falling on the ego. And the dead continue to live inside us. And it's also what the continuing bonds theory is, is getting at. People continue in relationship to the dead after the dead have died because those relationships are really there. The relationship endures because in a sense the dead the dead continue inside us. Connections with the dead endure. We have relationships to the dead and we don't need to be mediums or psychically gifted in order to do that. It's it's part of the human experience. But a course to pretend that nothing has changed when somebody has died would be deluded. Their life of course has ended and although as I mentioned at first it was difficult to see the difference between being with my dad in waking reality and being with him in a lucid dream after he died course there was a difference and that became more apparent as time went on. As I encountered him on subsequent occasions something was changing. He seemed less and less like himself on each meeting 
And what was particularly noticeable was everything would be fine with him. He would appear, we would meet, and it would be like being with my dad. Unless I asked him a question or did something that necessitated a response from him. And then he would react in sort of unusual, often quite grotesque ways. Um, You know, he might sort of make weird noises or, or look blank. Sometimes, as time went on, there was a stronger sense that that he wasn't real. There was one dream where I got up close to him, and it was like he was hollow inside and full of full of ashes, like he was a representation of himself rather than actually himself. And what this brought home to me was, well, there was a difference, there is a difference. The difference is that that he's dead. And what that meant was, you know, that, that ability to respond, that ability to contribute, generate something in response to a situation had gone. He's not alive anymore, so he can't add to what he has produced in his life. It's over, it's done. He is now what he was, what he did, but there isn't anything new that can come from that. And and that was exactly what the difference seemed to be between my dad in reality and alive and my dad in, in the dream state and after death. Nothing new could come from him. Um, he, he was what he had been and, you know, he would always be what he was. But it was done, it was over. My dad hadn't vanished, but his life had gone. And then I realised that it was not only his appearance that was changing, but also something about the relationship between us. As I went on meeting him, it felt like I was pulling him back from somewhere, you know, kind of forcing him to do something that that wasn't appropriate anymore. It felt like I was dragging him back, clinging on to him, and eventually I realised that it was time to to let go and to stop seeking him out in the lucid dreams. And of course it was difficult and of course it was sad, but this whole process had really helped me. Um, initially at the beginning, you know, because I could I could get my dad back, um, I could I could be with him. But because, you know, it had showed me over time that he was different, things had changed and that it wasn't right to hold on to him because it was trying to bring him back into into a state that that wasn't his anymore. You know, there was very much a sense that he was off doing something else. You know, he he was doing some work of his own that somehow seemed to be about letting go of everything that he was and being able to somehow let go of life so that he could enter into what lay beyond. There was very much a sense as if it were some kind of two-way process between the living and the dead. Difficult to put into words, but the way I'd attempt it is to say being in the presence of the dead enables us, the living, to not cling, to not hold on. And it's like being in the presence of the living for the dead enables them, in a way, to let go. So so for us it's not to cling, for them it's to let go. I mean, it's, it's sort of like two sides of the same thing. You know, thinking about what those encounters were like with my dad. I was there, and he was there, and I'm his son. And if he were alive, he would have done anything to keep that going. I know he would, but he wasn't. He wasn't alive. And what was happening there was about him being able to let go. If he was alive, he wouldn't. But being dead, that's that's what he needed to do. And that's what those encounters seemed to bring about. A way that I could stop clinging and he could let go and join the dead. 
within the last year, I got hold of a copy of a book called On Dreams and Death by Marie-Louise von Franz, who was a close associate of Jung. And it's a, a really amazing book. I really recommend it. Ostensibly, what she does in this book is analyse various symbols for death. Death can be represented in dreams as, as a journey, um, also as, as a, a marriage as well. There's, there's a, a range of different typical ways in which death is represented in dreams. But reading between the lines, as it seems you often have to do with Marie-Louise von Franz, the, the book is incredible. It, it's basically a kind of Jungian book of the dead. What she's doing underneath the surface is she's telling us what will happen to us after we die, what our post-mortem experience will be like. One dream in the book, one of her own dreams that she reports, where she she is visited by by her dead father about three weeks after he had died. And I was struck by a, a similar sense in in the dreams I'd had of my dad, you know, that sense of of the dead letting go and the encounter between the living and the dead somehow being a, an enactment or a facilitation of that. So in her dream the doorbell rings and she knows at once it's, it's her dad and she goes to the door and she writes, I remembered from the Tibetan Book of the Dead that people who died suddenly should be told that they are dead. But before I could say so, he smiled at me and said, of course I know that I am dead, but may I not visit you? I said, of course, come in. And then asked, how are you now? What are you doing? Are you happy? He answered, let me remember what you, the living, call happy. Yes, in your language, I am happy. I am in Vienna and I am studying at the music academy. Then he went into the house we climbed the stairs and I wanted to lead him to his former bedroom, but he said, oh no, now I am only a guest, and went up to the guest room. There he put his suitcase down and said, it is not good for either the dead or the living to be together too long. Leave me now, good night. And with a gesture, he signalled me not to embrace him, but to go. And I went to my own room. I mean, you know, I don't know what sort of relationship the two of them had, but um, she's his daughter. And there's that same sense there, as I noticed in the dreams with, with my dad, of the dead turning away, letting go, finding the way to be able to let go of life and to join the dead. And the encounter with us somehow helping them with that process, just as the encounter with them helps us to realise that, that although they're still around in many senses, their, their life is over and they need to let go. And we need not to cling on. In Marie-Louise von Franz's report of the dream, it reads almost like a lucid dream. It's like she's aware that she's she's meeting her dad. She doesn't explicitly say that, but it, it seems to be implied. And, and of course, my dreams were, were lucid dreams. And I've heard other people report dreams about encounters with the dead. And those two have, have been lucid or semi-lucid to some degree. And I wonder if this highlights something in her introductory chapter in On Dreams and Death she mentions how Jung would approach certain dreams as if they were objective communications from the dead rather than as with normal dreams as if they contain some sort of symbolic message from the unconscious and she describes how in dreams of patients after a certain amount of time, she also picked up a knack for this, for being able to tell the difference between the appearance of the dead in dreams where they're fulfilling some sort of symbolic function that's personal to the dreamer from other types of dreams where, as Jung certainly seemed to, to assume was the case, 
where the dead are appearing as themselves, where the dead are actually the dead in dreams. Like I said, the dreams I had of my dad, it was very much a sense that it was him. He was there and I was there, but it was him. And there is also the sense in these dreams of the dead and the living very much carrying out some sort of work with each other. You know, something actually happening, actually actually real. The dead letting go, the living being able not to cling. It's almost as if something objective is taking place rather than the normal sense that we have in dreams, that there's some kind of um, subjective uh, message from, from the unconscious to the ego. Because in the mind, the impact the dead had on us when they were alive is very much still present, very much still registers. And, you know, like we were exploring there is this sense that the dead live on inside us that means that there is the possibility of having encounters with the dead in dreams in which it is very much us meeting what is actually them actually them in a post-mortem form so what i hope that i've brought forward today is something about how working with the dead can be a very, very empty-handed form of magic. We don't need to be psychically gifted, we don't need to be mediums in order to have encounters with the dead and in order to do important work with the dead that can be of benefit to both the dead and the living. You don't need to engage in rituals in order to connect with the dead. You don't need to follow formalised systems of ancestor worship or, or anything like that to do this work, although you can if you want to. Why not? Relationships with the dead are very much embedded in the nature of human experience itself. The dead live on inside us in various different ways, in various different senses. And also, when the dead appear to us in dreams, that can actually be them in a significantly objective sense. When we dream of somebody who has died, that can sometimes amount to an actual encounter with them in what is actually their post-mortem state. So... I shall end it there for this episode. Take care, look after yourself, wrap up warm, and maybe we'll be meeting again sometime soon. <laughs>